This is Building the Independent Economy podcast, the only series made for founders and teams building the companies that enable and empower independent workers. In each episode, I'll interview subject matter experts, founders, and leaders on the front lines building epic businesses. They'll share insights and actionable advice that your team can use to grow your company and win in the independent economy. I'm your host, Trent Bigelow, CEO and co-founder of Abound. Here's today's episode. Harry Campbell is the founder of The Rideshare Guy, a blog, podcast, and YouTube channel for Uber and Lyft drivers and gig workers. He's also the author of The Rideshare Guide. Over the years, Harry has established himself as one of the leading rideshare experts with appearances in thousands of top media publications like the New York Times, CNN, and NPR, and his site is trafficked by hundreds of thousands of visitors every single month. In addition to the media side of his business, Harry and his team are active industry consultants, advisors, and investors in the mobility space. Harry, welcome to the Building the Independent Economy podcast. Thanks for having me on, Trent. I'm excited to chat. And I guess I'll have to add uh, the Independent Economy podcast to my list of media appearances pretty soon here. (laughs) Thank you very much. So where does the name The Rideshare Guy come from? What's the origin story? Like, how did you become The Rideshare Guy? Yeah, so I will say that the name has served me pretty well over the past seven years, and it's very catchy. And a lot of people, I think they know my name is Harry and maybe even my last name, Harry Campbell. But definitely in the mobility and transportation world, I'm usually referred to first and foremost as the rideshare guy. (laughs) So the name has caught on. But honestly, there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it seven years ago when I first started driving for Uber and Lyft on the side and blogging about my experience. I think I just wrote down a list of 50 names and I didn't want to go too niche. You know, I didn't want to be the Uber guy or anything around that because I figured there might be some other companies, but I figured the driving space was a big enough opportunity. And so that's sort of uh, why I settled on the rideshare guy and also sort of stole the name too from one of my blogging inspirations, the points guy. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I can't take a whole lot of original credit for it. But as I said, it's worked out well so far. But you weren't always the rideshare guy. Weren't you an engineer way back when? Yeah, I was an engineering guy before. And so my, you know, I guess you would say classical training, I went to school for uh, aerospace engineering, graduated a degree and worked at a few companies, most recently Boeing. And so I spent about, I want to say seven or eight years as a structural engineer for a few different aerospace companies. And in 2014, when Uber and Lyft were just starting getting going, I signed up to drive with Lyft. And then I did a ride with Uber with a recruiter and he paid me $500 in the parking lot of Boeing to do one trip on Uber. And uh, the rest was history. So I really started the blog kind of while I was working full time. And about a year into the blog, uh, the companies were growing exponentially and my site was starting to get a decent following. So I actually quit my day job as an engineer and have been working on the rideshare guy full time ever since. Wow. What are the biggest differences between, you know, again, back when you were a driver back then versus being a driver right now? Yeah. Well, probably first and foremost is pay. When I first signed up to drive with Uber and Lyft, I mean, the services were new. They also had a lot of money and you could really make a lot of money as a driver, you know, in order to build up the supply side of the market, they had to offer guaranteed earnings. They had to give those. I literally got $500 for doing one trip 
on Uber because I was a Lyft driver, right? They were sort of battling, the companies were battling for drivers back and forth. And so, and then just the per mile rates were pretty high too. I've got a podcast myself. And I remember, I think the third or fourth episode I ever did was about me driving Uber in Newport Beach, California on July 4th. And I think I made, I want to say every ride was 5X surge or higher. And I went out and drove three, four hours in the morning, made over $50 an hour, and then went and hung out with my friends for the rest of the day. So I was really kind of taking advantage of all the the best aspects, especially early on. So what is it about like gig work or driving in particular that you think maybe attracted you and, and the other yeah. drivers that you've studied? Like what is it about, you know, that nature of that work that has you even thinking of taking a chance on it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the number one thing that isn't the sexiest thing is just pay. I mean, you know, I think that it's easy to sort of sometimes talk about the benefits or, you know, talk about the flexibility, but I don't think anyone would be doing this job or really any job in the world if they weren't getting paid for it. And, you know, you can like your job, you know, a whole bunch, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're not getting paid, most people, you know, if not almost everyone won't be doing it. And so I think that when it comes to the gig economy, that's the primary motivator in a lot of different aspects and reasons and, you know, sort of just a lot of different variables or categories. I guess you would say pay is pretty important. But then I think the big one from there is the flexibility. I mean, I think there is something to the fact that, you know, I have an overall, I wouldn't say extremely positive outlook on the gig economy, but I definitely feel that the positives outweigh the negatives. And that's sort of the way that I've approached every project, all every piece of content that we do, and really just my general approach to the gig economy and my business in general. It'd be kind of tough to run a business, you know, covering what it's like to be an Uber driver if you absolutely hated it and thought it was the worst job in the world, right? But I do feel pretty strongly that the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think a good way to sum it up is that, you know, if you wanted to go out and drive for Uber, let's say today, in a best case scenario, you can literally be approved same day. You can do a virtual inspection of your vehicle with certain services. There's a quick turnaround time if the background check process goes smoothly. You can go out, apply in the morning, hopefully be approved at night in a best case scenario, do a single trip, cash that money out to your bank account instantly and literally have money in your bank account at the end of the day. And I think that that capability is pretty cool and extremely unique. So I think when we talk about like the positives outweighing the negatives, I think people immediately start thinking about like classification of workers. The, yeah. you know, are these gig workers, drivers, are they employees or independent contractors? Like that has been a big debate here in California, at least. Do you feel like from talking to all these drivers and, you know, obviously yeah. knowing the platforms pretty well too, like, can you walk our listeners through a little bit about that debate sure. or where you think it's going? Sure. Well, and what's funny too is that since I've been doing this for seven years, which is pretty old in rideshare years, most people don't make it, you know, whether you're a driver or working at the company. I think there's only one or two people, maybe a, maybe a handful of people actually still at Uber that started before me, you know, working for the actual company as an employee at Uber. But, you know, this issue came up, I would say, four or five years ago, actually, like around the last, you know, two presidential election cycles ago. And uh, it sort of waned and then obviously now has kind of popped back up and I think will be very important, you know, going going forward as the battles sort of get finalized, I guess you would say, as we saw here with Prop 22 in California. And I think really what it boils down to is that there's a lot of different slices of drivers and gig workers. But I think two main categories that you can start off with would be part-time versus full-time, right? Uber and Lyft and really every gig work company, I think does a pretty 
honest and good job of advertising this line of work as part-time flexible. You never see an ad from Uber saying, hey, come work 50 hours a week for us, right? It's always, you know, work when you want, work when you need. And so I think to the company's credit, that's how they advertise the job. And that's, you know, and how I've personally always taken advantage of it. And frankly, how I've always recommended. I mean, I think doing any job 40, 50 hours a week kind of sucks, right? Like driving for Uber, you know, working on my blog 40, 50 hours a week is a total grind too, right? So you know, full-time work in general can be really tough and driving for Uber, you know, I think is maybe not even worse, but you know, there's some special or unique challenges there, but there are a lot of people that do have to do that, you know, so I think in the surveys that we've done and the surveys that Uber and other people have released, it's pretty clear that, you know, about 15 to 20% of drivers, let's focus on Uber and Lyft for a second now, um, 15 to 20% of drivers are in that kind of full-time category, so maybe 32, 30 hours a week or more, and then a majority, overwhelming majority, you know, 80% are part-time, right? And so if you're doing this part-time, you probably can take more advantage of the flexibility and you can take advantage of, you know, working the more profitable bar hours, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, maybe rush hour, you know, Monday through Friday. And so I think when you think about the nature of the workforce, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that when you go out, like when we go out and survey drivers, most drivers want to be independent contractors because most of them are part-time. But I think they're really kind of unique wrench in the equation is that those full-time drivers actually make up a majority of the total hours worked on the platform, the total trips on the platform. And you actually see this across a lot of marketplace businesses. Airbnb got in kind of a lot of trouble because they had all these power hosts, right? That had like basically were converting huge apartments into Airbnbs. You see this on Turo, you know, one person renting out a car. It's not actually one person. It's like a whole team behind them. And they actually turns out, you know, they've got 10, 15, 20, 30 cars. And so I think these power users on this marketplace system, you know, for them, and when it comes to Uber and Lyft, you know, someone who's a power driver, this is their sole source of income. So you can imagine that they're doing 40, 50 hours a week. They don't get health insurance from other places. They don't get unemployment. If they get into an accident, they now don't have a car. And so I I sort of just wanted to preface the uh, employer independent contractor discussion, you know, with sort of that, that background, I guess you would say. Definitely. So for those power drivers, are they long-time drivers or is this like the short burst of intensity or do they burn out? Like, How long are they on those platforms? Yeah, well, I think we definitely see a bit of a barbell situation when it comes to tenure in the gig economy. I mean, by nature, I think it's a transient line of work. If you look at retail and, you know, service, you know, type jobs, there's always high turnover in those jobs. So I think a lot of people like to point to gig economy and say like, oh, they've got the worst turnover ever. You know, Uber released a study saying two thirds of their workers quit after just six months a few years ago. And that sounds really bad. But I think I saw another study that said, you know, retail workers, like 90% of them like turnover after one year, right? So on an absolute basis, maybe it's not as bad as you might think, but definitely there is a lot of turnover. And so I think you have a lot of new drivers and then you have a lot of drivers who figure out the system and, you know, hopefully they're, they're following, they're probably following the rideshare guy or hopefully they are, you know, taking our courses or they just learn through experience. One of the really interesting things and really kind of the whole thesis of my business is that the more experience you have, the more money you can make, right? And the example that I like to use is if you know you had two Starbucks baristas start on day one, let's say they both are making $15 an hour. One is 
probably going to be better than the other at their job. They might be faster. They might be better at customer service. And in the gig economy, you can make more money the better you are. And I've always sort of you know felt this pretty strongly. Uber released this really interesting study using, well, it was actually a Cornell study in tandem with Uber where they used actual earnings from drivers. And there was some debate over the final numbers. But one thing that you couldn't really argue about was the sort of variability. Some drivers in Seattle, when they looked at this over a three-month period, were earning on average under $10 an hour, and others were earning over $40 an hour, right? That was the range. And obviously, you know, these are, this is the low end and the high end, and there's a whole bunch of people in between. But just to show you, like, the guys and the girls who don't know what they're doing or maybe are new are literally earning less than $10 an hour. So if you hear a driver say, I'm earning minimum wage, that could very well be true. And if you see another driver saying, I'm making $40 an hour, that could also be true. And so I think, you know, that variability makes things, you know, for lively discussion, I guess you'd say. So I think in the last year, a year and a half for drivers, the world's been probably different than like those years before. What are some of the things from talking to these drivers, from doing your research, what was life like during the pandemic for these drivers that was different from before? For sure. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I was pretty worried that like my audience was going to be hit extremely hard. Like I was literally expecting I was going to be getting emails from people losing their house, losing their car. And I don't think it actually got that bad. I think the government stimulus that came through either through unemployment because gig workers were included in unemployment or the PPP loans, for example. There's another one called the employee retention credit, the idle uh, $1,000 grants, which I think Uber drivers were actually the number one recipient of by quantity, which is pretty funny. They were like the number one recipient of $1,000 idle grants when when you put down the description of what job you do. And uh, so I think that it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But it allowed a lot of drivers to not have to drive for Uber and Lyft, which I think was a, you know, obviously pretty unsafe thing to do, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, you're sitting obviously less than six foot from someone and uh, in an enclosed space, so sort of all the, the COVID no-nos. And so I think the, the two or three big trends that we saw was number one, you know, a lot of drivers were able to not have to drive. They were on, you know, getting some form of government stimulus. And then I think with the rise of all the delivery services, you know, it's funny now because I call myself the rideshare guy. But over the past year and a half, our most popular content has been delivery stuff. You know, majority of our revenue is now from delivery stuff, right? Whether it's affiliate stuff or, you know, products and services for delivery drivers. We just launched a course for delivery drivers, right? And so I think that's the other big thing that, you know, we've seen the rise. I mean, I just had DoorDash's president on my podcast and he was reeling off these stats about dashers. And, you know, one thing that stood out to me, they've got 2 million dashers right now, right? So, you know, food delivery, grocery delivery, but really all of last mile delivery, I think is a real, you know, sort of not complimentary, but a real competitor, I guess you would say to Uber and Lyft. Whereas before, I think they were always kind of the number one options. You know, if you wanted to make the most amount of money, you could go to Uber and Lyft. And now I think that's a a bit grayer. When you talk about competition, you mean that uh, all these platforms are competing for those drivers and the best drivers, right? Yeah, no, I think that on the supply side, there's a ton of competition right now. I think if there's a pretty well-documented driver shortage, really worker shortage, you know, across retail and restaurants. And I think a, a lot of that has to do with the stimulus that drivers are receiving specifically when it comes to Uber and Lyft, though. I think that a lot of, you know, the stimulus is one thing, but also a lot of drivers have moved over to delivery services. You know, before the pandemic, I think DoorDash and 
Instacart, like I said, I don't think they were real competitors on the supply side, but I think now they really are and they can, you know, pay similar amounts, offer, you know, similarly competitive bonuses, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you've ordered food delivery in the past year at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some issues, you know, with reliability. But I mean, over the past year, I would say food delivery and grocery delivery have been extremely reliable. Whereas, you know, if you've ordered an Uber in the past three months, it's like complete nightmare right now in uh, many cities across the U.S. Some cities are still okay to good. But, you know, like in L.A., for example, it's very bad. So you talk about competition being one of those challenges for all these platforms to get Mm -hmm. the talent. What are some of the other challenges you think, again, maybe as we come out of this pandemic or, you know, slowly, I don't want to say go back to normal, but things are going to be different the next year. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of the challenges that the platforms might have is, you know, I mean, I guess I would say in general, I do think that when we get a little bit back more to an equilibrium phase, I do think like people will always pay more for a ride for themselves than they will for their food or for their groceries, right? And I th- I just think that, you know, like, right, food delivery is a good example, right? There's a lot of regulatory and complaints and issues around the, the fees that these services are charging, right? Restaurants feel that they pay too high a fees, right? Delivery drivers, a lot of them, like, don't feel that they make enough money. The platforms are not profitable, right? So I think some of these, you know, like food delivery, like I'm a bit skeptical on the unit economics of food delivery in general. I mean, I think a lot of them are looking to add on, you know, groceries or convenience items or alcohol, right? And so I think that there's a lot going on in that space. But I do think, you know, sort of where it's trending is that these companies, I think, like have to be able to offer reliable work to their drivers, you know, as frequently as possible, right? With Uber and Lyft, you can, you know, if you're in a big city driving for Uber, you can really flip your app on at any time, day or night and go out and make money. If you're doing DoorDash, for example, though, there's more specific peaks and uh, troughs where you can work as a driver, but DoorDash is looking to add grocery and looking to add convenience and, you know, sort of balance some of that out. So I think that's what some of the platforms are looking to right now to, you know, compete on the supply side. So how do you think these platforms can best win over these drivers to theirs as opposed to everybody else? Good question. So I think one thing that a lot of the platforms do not do a great job of is valuing the drivers who have been most loyal or who are doing the most number of trips or who have the highest ratings. And I think if you went out and asked them, they would probably all ask for higher pay. And that may be a possibility, you know, in some cases, but I think it can even be simple stuff. Like one example that I like to point to is Lyft used to offer, once you hit a thousand trips, they would send you a jacket, right? So swag basically. And it was a pretty nice jacket. And I was always surprised. I would go to these Lyft driver events and like all these people were wearing the jackets. (laughs) And like, you know, it's a nice jacket, but it's not like, you know, a hundred dollar jacket or anything, you know, but it's like, it's kind of cool to represent that to get that recognition. And I think that's the one thing that often doesn't come across in the metrics, right? Like a lot of these platforms, they love to A-B test, right? So for example, one complaint that we hear from a lot of drivers is that new drivers often get the better bonuses or they get the better offers or whatever it may be. And I don't know that that's actually true, but you could easily imagine all these drivers on Facebook groups, forums, Reddit's my site, you know, someone gets a a quest, an Uber quest, which is their bonus program offer. And it's, you know, some simple A-B test where they get $400 for, you know, 100 rides and someone else gets $500 for 100 rides and they're a brand new driver. And if you're someone who's put in 15,000 trips with this company, you're like, dude, what the hell is this? You know, like, um, and I don't think that ever will really come across in the data, like why that person, you know, maybe they went and drove for a lift that week. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in rewarding your workers within the products and the system 
systems that you already have. You don't necessarily need to build something new, right? But if you have customer service for your drivers and you've got tier one agents and tier two, you know, type agents, you send the people who have over 15,000 trips, maybe you should send them straight, you know, to the tier one agents so they can get their problem solved quicker. You make them wait less time, right? Because Uber, for example, they already have some of these, you know, like tier one, tier two type agents in place. But if you call in, they just send you, you know, to some low level person and, you know, you sit on the phone and wait on hold and, you know, and then they don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, it's not the most pleasant experience. That's interesting. Like, so you're saying like with Uber and Lyft, they're doing maybe a better job of creating those tiered loyalty rewards for us riders. You're talking yeah. about how like you should do the same thing for the driver. Yeah. And the companies are definitely working on it, but I still think that they've got a ways to go. And I think that right now, this driver shortage is a good example. You know, we talked about the two main reasons that, uh, you know, folks aren't coming back to Uber and Lyft. But another thing, you know, I think a lot of drivers feel like they've been burned in the past by the companies, right? Because they had experiences like I was detailing or they don't trust the companies, right? And, you know, when times were good and, you know, Uber and Lyft had lots of money and they could acquire drivers for a cheap price, it didn't really matter. They could sort of not have to worry about that churn. But I think that the thing that they didn't really see or think about is like how hard it would be to get people back. They kind of assumed like, okay, you know, when we were paying $30 an hour, we had this many drivers. If we drop it down to 20, you know, we can always raise it back and get those drivers back on. Like that math might make sense on a spreadsheet. But that's one of the things that I've heard from a lot of drivers. Like Uber literally pushed a notification to my Uber driver app the other day that drivers in LA are averaging $40 an hour. That's a ton of money right now. And they still don't have enough drivers in LA, right? I mean, so you're sort of thinking about like, what are all those drivers? You know, I mean, there's a stimulus and unemployment, but I think a lot, you know, I have heard that sentiment from drivers that they don't trust that number, that $40 an hour number. I have no reason to think that the company's lying, but, you know, they don't trust it or they think, oh, it'll only last for a little while or, you know, it sounds too good to be true, right? And so I think that's kind of some of the issues that are lingering. Got it. What do you think is the future of ride sharing as a category? I mean, people talk a lot about self-driving cars are going to replace everybody. Where do you think the reality is? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty skeptical on self-driving cars replacing drivers anytime soon. I mean, I drive a Tesla and my Tesla still can't merge onto the freeway in LA traffic. And it's been pretty bad for about three years. And whenever I go into autopilot and traffic, my wife is always complaining that, you know, it's like harsh braking and oh, it doesn't know how to stop. And, you know, it's sort of an anecdotal example, but I think it kind of highlights and I think that it's a lot of the experts, you know, I'm no expert in self-driving and autonomous, but I do think there is a lot of agreement that this problem is a lot harder than maybe initially thought. And uh, I don't know that it'll be around anytime soon. And when it does eventually come, I think it'll be very geo-restricted or certain routes. And I imagine there'll be sort of this hybrid situation where you have a lot of drivers, human drivers, maybe some autonomous, right? It's going to be the technology is going to be really expensive at the beginning. And so even if it does sort of start shifting towards an autonomous fleet, I think it will take quite a while. And, you know, I think also it's a completely different business model. Right now, Lyft and Uber don't own a single vehicle in their fleet for the most part. And, uh, you know, not that they wouldn't be able to get financing for a bunch of autonomous vehicles, but it's just, you know, a completely different business model. Uber went into the uh, vehicle financing space with exchange leasing a few years ago, and they ended up, I believe, losing using like $5,000 or something like that per car and had 90,000 cars or something like that. And I don't know, my math is off, but it ended up being like a $450 million loss the last time they got into financing. So, you know, that that, that business can be, it's very different and challenging. 
Wow. So in the year 2021, coming from the future back to today, <laughs> the rideshare platforms have, you know, for the first time started to implement, you know, Proposition 22 yeah. and complying. What have you been hearing from drivers as far as like the first couple quarters of the whole ACA healthcare reimbursement? Yeah. What are you hearing? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's been kind of interesting is that a lot of the aspects of Prop 22 haven't really come into play yet. I mean, so let's start. There's this sort of quasi uh, wage guarantee, and it's been really busy for Uber and Lyft drivers and, you know, even delivery workers. Right. So that minimum guarantee doesn't really apply if you're making good money and making a lot of money. Right. So we haven't seen a ton there. And then I think on the healthcare subsidy, you know, that is part of Prop 22, I think that it's still a little bit early. We've been getting some feedback from drivers, you know, that are having some issues, you know, whether it's not being reported correctly or, you know, it's sort of like, hey, you know, I saw it pop up and then I didn't or I did, you know, that like kind of arguments over the hours, basically, which I think will get worked out. I don't think there's anything nefarious going on there. But I mean, I do think it is a benefit to, you know, like, honestly, the bigger platforms. I think this is one thing, actually, I don't think a lot of the it's not smaller, but, you know, like basically I think it really benefits Uber, right? Because I think Uber has the biggest workforce and has the most diverse options to offer their drivers. And since, so for example, with Prop 22, you know, in order to get the full ACA uh, reimbursement, I believe you have to work 25 hours online with a single platform, right? So if you want to get that best bonus, you have to pick one platform, right? And so you can't go and do 20 hours on Uber and 20 hours on DoorDash and it's online, I want to say, or engaged hours, or I can't remember exactly what the terminology is that they use, but it's it's more than 20. 25 hours, basically, that you have to work in order to qualify. I think it's 25 engaged hours, so you might have to be online more than that. But yeah, so I, I think it will potentially benefit Uber, for example, or you know whoever kind of is like the dominant player on the supply side. So how can listeners, whether they're, they're founders of startups that are trying to serve these gig workers, or again, gig workers themselves, or the platforms, how can they learn more about what you're doing? For sure. So I would say a good spot is my podcast. So the Rideshare Guy podcast, we kind of cover the industry, obviously, from the workers lens, but the podcast is probably my most industry focus, you know, sort of like for the founders. I mean, sort of a lot of the stuff that I'm personally interested in these days, you know, things like uh, last mile delivery, electrification, uh, regulation, um, you know, and sort of policy type stuff. So I talk about a lot of that on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's probably a good spot. But other, other than that, you can really type the Rideshare guy into any box or uber driving or anything like that into any box on the internet and hopefully i pop up pretty high (laughs) for sure uh harry campbell the founder of the rideshare guy thank you so much for joining us today thanks trent it's a pleasure thanks for listening to building the independent economy podcast brought to you by abound for access to the latest episodes links and more about today's guest visit our website at withabound.com slash podcast. If you're building tax or benefits features for independent workers, check out Abound, the easiest way to automate contributions for taxes, healthcare, retirement, insurance, and more. Have an amazing day and stay independent.